everybody, welcome back to Hints and Guesses. I am really excited today because I want to start a new series called Stuff That Helps. Man, all of my teachings, programs, ideas, books, retreats, Israel trips, whatever, have been enormously influenced by people I respect. And their ideas show up in my work. And sometimes I acknowledge it, sometimes I don't, sometimes I make footnotes or allusions or references or quotations, but rarely do I just turn directly toward the idea and let it breathe some. That's what I want to do. I just want to share with you stuff that helps, stuff that has helped me personally, ideas that have challenged me, books that have challenged me, I'll try to, obviously I'm going to run it through my own sort of filter or grid, but that's what I'm really excited about. And I made a giant list of all kinds of things, so we'll see how long this series lasts. So that's where we're going. That's where we're going today. In fact, I want to start with a conversation about adult initiation. First of all, we don't have very many adults, and we don't often talk about initiation rooted in some of the work of Richard Rohr. So that's what this episode is going to be about. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me feedback from time to time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Please go to my website, kentdobson.com. Hit the connect button. That way you can stay in contact with me. And I'll let you know about all the interesting stuff that I'm cooking up over the next few months, trips, retreats, and all kinds of new resources. So that's coming shortly, so make sure you uh, send me your email address through my website. I think that's, um, that's enough of an intro. Let's do it. I want to start with a book that I read a number of years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, that as I think of it, by Richard Rohr, called Adam's Return. Like a lot of things with the Richard Rohr, I think probably I first heard these ideas in his catalog of audio teachings. Back in the day when you could get tapes or CDs, things were a little more difficult to access. So I, I think I heard some of these ideas before I ever bought the book and right away as soon as he started talking I thought whatever this guy is talking about I'm into and it was um, I think a hunger maybe that I didn't even know was there or the hunger was there but I didn't know what it was craving there was something about what Richard Rohr was Uh, getting at in this book, Adam's Return, that seemed to satisfy a bit of that craving, or at least give that craving some direction. And what he was talking about was male initiation. And that's kind of, um, I don't know how politically correct a conversation is about male initiation. I personally think it's a absolutely critical and pressing um, question. What does an initiated male look like? A better maybe if if you don't if the word initiation throws you off a little bit, what does healthy sacred masculinity look like? Because everything in our culture screams immature, unhealthy, dangerous, and toxic forms of masculinity from our pop stars to our politicians to even our pastors and leaders and sometimes teachers and coaches we don't know what healthy masculinity looks like and and obviously we have very little respect for sacred the sacred feminine we have very little contact with the sacred feminine And ancient cultures recognized this. And, you know, um, it's not about going backwards, but we're talking about thousands of years of wisdom 
that contemporary society with Google tends to dismiss. We're talking about thousands of years of wisdom around a very simple idea that young people have a hard time growing up. And specifically in this book, boys have a hard time growing up. We have a very hard time entering adolescence. We have a very, very, very hard time knowing when adolescence ends and entering into adulthood. And I'm not talking about age. I'm a little bit talking about biology. You are obviously, you enter adolescence by no choice of your own. Biologically, boom, there you are. The fires of adolescence are chemically moving through your body. So you're ushered in by the mystery of nature itself, but what to do with it? And what does that do to the human psyche and to the development of the ego and to our own soul capacities? And how do we move into more healthy forms of adulthood? And a little phrase I really, really like comes from Bill Plotkin. I first heard it through Richard Rohr, and now Bill, Bill Plotkin has become one of my teachers, but I first heard about him through Richard Rohr. He calls our culture a patho-adolescent society, or pathologically adolescent. And now I'm going to say some positive things about adolescence in a moment, but adole- he, he means by patho-adolescent the, the most immature and underdeveloped elements of adolescence are what we call adulthood. And Richard Rohr loves to use the the phrase power, possessions, and prestige. These are the things that the adolescent and now patho-adolescent culture, especially masculine culture, bows down at the altar. Power, possessions, prestige, and we basically think we can solve all of our own personal problems and sometimes our societal problems through power, prestige, and possessions. And I think with uh, social media, which tends to ramp up the appearance of power, possessions, and prestige, we're continually lured back into these very immature uh, pursuits that maybe are born in the fires of adolescence, but are meant to, in a healthy culture, be cultivated and honed. So I, I, um, I want to, first of all, get right to the point of Richard Rohr's um, basic argument in this book. And then I'll kind of backtrack and wander around. Because I just want to tell you directly, he says, an initiated male has learned five things. And, or another way of saying it, a healthy enough or a a more healthy or whole adult man has learned in his body, heart, mind, soul, spirit, five things. Here they are. Life is hard, number one. Two, you are not important. Three, your life is not about you. Four, you are not in control. Five, you're going to die. Now, oh, for some reason these like make me laugh in a way because as soon as I say them that directly, life is hard, you're not important, your life is not about you, you are not in control, you're going to die, you can see why our culture is very immature. We have very little contact with any one of those things. Or if any of those things are present, like number one, life is hard, we think there's a problem. We think, if I had more power, prestige, possessions, fame, success, drugs, women, um, I would be, it it wouldn't be so hard. (laughs) I'd be cool. I'd be good. I'd be good to go. There's a problem if, if, the fa- if I'm having a hard time in life. And if you think about the midlife crisis, which, in, which I see as a massive, awesome uh, gateway to real change and growth, 
although it's often not that, it doesn't end up being that, the midlife crisis is really the soul knocking on the heart of our men, the patho-adolescent uh, male in our culture, saying, hey, I'm still in here, and I'm giving you a chance. I'm giving you a chance, in some respects, to learn one or all of these lessons before you die. Here, here I'm, I'm, I'm slamming down the door. And a midlife crisis can be whatever, uh, a divorce, a job loss, um, a desire for a Corvette, you know, a, uh, um, an affair, uh, whatever, you know, you know, the kinds of things that, um, the adults in our adult men in our culture are going through, you know, that saying that, um, ancient cultures didn't have their version of a midlife crisis. I'm sure they did, but they seem to have a more direct knowledge um, of the reality that I'm describing, that young people have a hard time growing up and they need, in some respects, to be taught what it means to be a man, the sacred uh, masculine, you could call it. They need to be taught that because left to themselves, they will go the path of an unchecked, possessive ego. They will go the path, that's a modern way of saying it, they will turn toward narcissism or sometimes nihilism. They will um, think power, prestige, and possessions will solve all of their problems. They will strut around as if they're not going to die, that life shouldn't be this hard, that they're really important, that um, it, they're in control, and that whatever, they're going to live forever, and that life is about them. That describes a lot of men and leaders in our culture. And actually, a lot of leadership language, which has always made me very uncomfortable, oftentimes has a spine of um, some of these patho-adolescent obsessions as a way, just kind of the way the world works. Well, you don't understand, this is the way the world works, and you got to learn how to play the system if you want to get ahead. Yeah, all right, if you want to get ahead in a profoundly sick society, go ahead. And what's going to be left in the wake of that? Me too. Hashtag me too. That's going to be left in the wake. Um, poor people, immigrants, aliens, people who don't measure up, people who don't, do not have the right body type to um, be the cream of the crop, people who don't have the, the acceptable kinds of social skills will be left behind, which is you know, sad and doesn't need to be this way. And I don't know exactly what the answer is, um, but maybe the part of the argument of the book is, and it is that we need initiation. We need initiators might be the best. So first of all, we need adults and elders. Richard Rohr, I think about as being one of the more important elders for for Christians and now for a growing number of post-Christians or people who weren't even, you know, ever in the tribe, uh, he's becoming a voice of um, spiritual wisdom, in other words, an elder. Uh, so we need adults and elders, and we need those adults and elders to initiate, I think, first of all, the so-called adults in our culture, and maybe on the parallel track, our young people that are having a hard time. How do we know they're having a hard time? Suicide, violence, jail, massive amounts of addiction of various kinds from social media addictions, phone addictions, to um, legal drugs. I have a high schooler, and the way she describes uh, high school culture is more and more it's the legal drugs, the ones their parents had... Uh, uh, prescribed to them that are the ones being floated around in the school. Hey, combine this with this and this with this and see what happens. Th and this is in our the best school systems, according to, to our kind of sick system. So our young people are having a really hard time. 
and our men are having, uh, boys are having a really hard time. One of the saddest things about about Trump being the president, when when we start thinking about the kind of mythic cultural uh, image that it's that it creates, when um, when you have someone at the very top who now is the most powerful person in the world, supposedly talking about women and treating women the way that he does did and probably does, although I don't know him personally, but like the way he spoke on the access Hollywood tape, for example, is that the kind of fires of eros that every adolescent boy has now in a more conscious way, it's kind of a wink and a nod that it's okay to behave like this. And actually if you go my way, which is the way of winning and power and money and fame and glitz and glory, you can have you can have this possession, meaning um, sex and women, and it's yours to be taken once you get the power, once you win. That's now being communicated directly, and that's what's so sad about um, just dismissing it and saying, "Ah, it's a locker room talk." Yeah, that's. If, the, if that's what's going on in the locker room, what we have are um, uninitiated males. And I'm not picking on high school kids. I'm picking on adults right now. So I, I think it's, I'm going to try to define, without looking it up, uh, what, what an initiated male is. Because if you're going to talk about initiation, you have to try to define what that is. And first of all, an initiation is, is usually a symbolic marker of one's transition. And to use contemporary language, psycho-spiritual transition from one stage of life to another. So the bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah marks one's physical changes and also now responsibility in the Jewish community from boyhood to manhood, adulthood, for men and women with the bat mitzvah. Um, and probably reveals something that was more true in the ancient world, than it is now. There really wasn't what we would call adolescence back then. And this has been, social scientists have been saying this for a while, that adolescence is a relatively contemporary phenomenon. Because in the ancient world, you have to grow up a lot quicker. You grew up and started having babies when you were essentially a teenager. And the society needed you to um, be an active, full participant from a pretty young age. So the rites and rituals had more... Um, urgency and potency to them just for the survival of the tribe or the group or the or whatever. Um, and now we have this kind of new season of, of adolescence, which is getting longer and longer and longer. And, you know, you can be 35 and live at home and still feel really that you're just a kid, that you're just in, like you're a teenager, that, you know, you're still going to the bar like you were 21 years old something is going on in our culture and and without even criticizing that okay so we have a new thing called adolescence we have to kind of turn our attention to that so back to the question of an initiated adult is someone who has passed through from one stage to the next and and typically um, they know it and the community knows it that's why they did rites and rituals now, one thing that is um, maybe important to note is that 
the initiation ceremony practice does not initiate someone. Really, the mystery of life, that's the way I would put it personally, initiates them. Or if you want to put this in slightly more theological language, maybe the mystery of God even is the active ingredient plus the circumstances of life. But it, it's, in other words, it's not a math equation like you go out and do a vision fast and then you're an initiated adult or you, you know, um, Richard Rohr gives some awesome examples in there where I think in Australia they would send their boys out and I think that they had to learn how to grieve. Um, they had to um, go on a wander, a walkabout. And um, when the community determined, in a sense, this person is ready to become a man, then they would go and carve their own axe out of this special stone in this one particular canyon and bring that back as a marker, as a symbol, as a sign that the community um, was recognizing their rite of passage into adulthood. And now the community had expectations, but also for the participant, this is my marker, this is my symbol. But just because you you know carve something out of stone, doesn't it's not like math. It doesn't magically make you something. It's a little bit more, um, I guess, symbolic and metaphoric. And when we live in a culture where they're, where we're losing all these rites and rituals, I mean, you, what are they now? You know, I suppose you have catechism if you're religious, but really, you know, memorizing answers to questions, that doesn't seem to um, be really much of a marker. And then the other ones are just birthdays. Turn 16, you can drive. Turn 18, you can vote and go to war. Turn 21, you can go to the bar with your friends legally. Um, wow. Um, and a lot of that in a, in a kind of patho-adolescent culture is received as entitlement. Like you're entitled to drive. You're entitled to, you know, buy cigarettes. You're entitled to go to the bar, you know, power, prestige, and possessions, mine, mine, mine. Um, these aren't very little of the five, really Richard Rohr, by the way, calls them promises, the five promises of male initiation that in each of these things, life is hard. You are not important. Life is not about you. You are not in control. You're going to die are promises that, um, shape you and form you and mold you. And I think, uh, bring forth, and here's a very ancient idea, the depths of the seed of who you are or the soul out into the world. But if you don't learn these lessons, then you're likely to strut around, which is what I was describing before. So uh, just a bit more on initiation. Uh, Richard Rohr points out at the beginning of his book, uh, Adam's Return, he talks a bit about the Native American vision quest, which is, I think this is really where I first heard of it. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And, um, and I could right away see that it was a trans religious, transcultural kind of thing, because you see it in the Jesus story. I made a podcast about this a while back. Jesus spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness is a kind of vision quest or fast. And, um, couple things that are important about that. First of all, the term vision fast is, was really invented by British anthropologists. And, um, because they basically ask, what do you do out there? And they're like, we, we receive a vision and we fast. <laughs> so they call it the vision fast. The Lakota people, we know this from the book, uh, Black Elk Speaks, called it a lament, which is, uh, much richer then, and very, by the way, less um, sort of heroic, like I'm going to go out and get a vision. Now I'm going to go out and lament, grieve, cry, wail, and moan, because not only do I need to grow up, but my community needs me to grow up. That's really the fundamental difference between a kind of narcissistic kind of, it's all about me and my personal vision, you know, and what the ancient cultures seem to be pointing out, which is the community needed its young people to grow up and grow up well into initiated adults who had a vision for life that was bigger than their own. 
an example being, your life is not about you. Your life is about service, giving away, being a generative adult to the next generation, to your kids and, and, and grandkids and great-grandkids and seven and ten and twenty generations down the line. That's an initiated adult. But um, again, that's a difficult thing to learn. And um, so I guess that's that's one point I want to say. It's much more like a lament. And if you think about our world right now, we need vision. Look at our leaders and their lack of vision. They offer the same solutions to the same problems again and again and again and again, thinking that if their position just won the day, it would solve the problem. But that's a, that's a lack of um, imaginative, creative vision on the one hand. So we need people who have gone and done some lamenting and grieving and crying out and also people who are bringing that stuff back. Now, and one amazing thing about the book Black Elk Speaks, which uh, that could be a whole other podcast, Stuff That Helps. Um, when the, when the, the indigenous people of North America sent their, their boys out, and it was a boy thing, um, I, there has been a lot. If you're interested in female initiation, there's a great book called... Um, Betwixt and Between has some sections on there. And then the best book ever is Women Who Run With the Wolves, full of myths and stories about female initiation. So there, it's out there. But in this case, they sent mainly their boys out. Um, and when they brought their vision back, or their experience being out in the wild world, being shaped by nature, the, Richard Rohr says they wanted, uh, what does he say? He said, um, you can't come back until you have two things, I think. You, you have a vision, so they want to know what was that thing, and that you've had contact with the great spirit, that, um, which maybe is a way of talking about transcendence and incendence, if I read into that. So has something of the great transcendent one, we might call God or the being beyond all beings or the nameless one, in other words, the great mystery, You've had, a, you've had contact with that, and also um, your unique um, way of seeing the world and being in the world, we might call that soul, incendence, those two things, uh, there's some sort of alchemical mixture that they're bringing back. And amazingly, in Black Elk Speaks, the elders would say, what did you see out there? What happened to you? And get very curious. Now, when was the last time an elder was craving to hear from young people like what is it like to be you what happened to you out there and and acknowledging that the community what it does is acknowledge that the community will not grow and change without the next generation taking their place and bringing in a fresh vision for life for the problems of life for the suffering of the community for the problems in the world tell us and then the elders would act out that vision. The men and women all together would put on essentially a kind of sacred play embodying the vision of their young people. Now that is incredible. And that's, I mean, we, we could go into a whole like what's going on in the psyche and archetypes and all kinds of things, but just think of how much that honors the voice of a young person and the experience of a young person. So, um, that's um, that was what was, uh, in a sense, behind this vision quest. And if I, if I just switch over to Jesus for a moment, the same can be said of his experience in the wilderness. He goes out, he has an encounter or an experience with the Spirit. That was the um, Hebrew way of describing what's in, in this indigenous practice, the Great Spirit. Um, something of the, the Holy Spirit, the wind of God, he has that contact with the divine, and he has a kind of trial with, you know, the dark side of life and the temptations and wrestling with Satan. And, and without this kind of wrestling match and lament and grief and struggle out in the wilderness, he's not going to bring forth what he then called the kingdom of God. 
So he has to pass through. And that's, that's in a sense, a kind of initiation. And it's at that point Jesus begins to make disciples and heal and teach and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, uh, one more point that is more in the realm of biology. Because if you're a skeptic at this point, which we should all, you should be skeptical of everything I say. I'm skeptical of things I say too. Um, we might ask what's going on just in terms of, of biology that's worth noting. And Richard Rohr has a story about this at the very beginning of the book. He says that somewhere in, in um, Africa, there were, um, there was a, a group of elephants, young male elephants that were sort of terrorizing this um, area of the park, doing violent things, stomping on VWs and tearing up trees and even killing other members of the group, the smaller members of the group. And the park rangers realized that there were no older adult males in the community left. They had all been poached off. So they did an experiment. They brought in older adult males from a different, um, I don't know, pod of elephants. <laughs> That's not the right word, I know. Um, into the group. And the behavior changed almost immediately. The older adult males, males would make noises. They'd stop. They'd occasionally charge these young boys. And their behavior stopped. Which, if that's true in the animal kingdom, that there's something about early adolescent male energy that needs to be corrected by healthy, mature adults. If that's true in nature, how much more so I mean, after all, we're just nature. Human beings are nature too. So it's in our nature. It's in our biological DNA, in our evolutionary DNA. So it can't be shamed out of us or even taught out of us. It might just be the way it is, like it or not, the way it is. Some sort of uh, symbolic charge has to come. A sacred symbolic charge has to come. Because I think one of the mistakes of sort of liberal, progressive uh, thought is that the fires of adolescence and even some of the unhealthy fight, flight, um, sleep with it kind of uh, energy, we could just teach that right out of kids. You know, well, we won't allow them to have toy guns. We'll put them in uh, diverse social groups. We'll teach them to respond gently and we'll talk to them like, um, well, Timmy, how, what's going on inside right now? And some of that stuff I think is, is important, but I think it tends to mask a kind of biological reality that early adolescence is a fiery and wild and erotic time. The Greeks would use the word eros. And if eros is not corrected by logos, reason, then the whole village is going to be burned down. People are going to be killed. Um, and that kind of erotic fire can destroy the world. Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, he, he writes, um, this is in The Holy Longing, he writes a lot about Eros. And he uses some examples like, um, well, the only one I can think of right now is Janis Joplin. But I was thinking about Janis Joplin or or um, even Jimi Hendrix or, or Kurt Cobain. There's so much Eros, and I mean that in like, not just sexually erotic, but eros is the fire of life, the passion. It's so wild. But if there's not like some logos that comes in or like a, a, a bull elephant symbolically pushing against that, it's likely to run amok. And you start empowering that and then you end up in, in a kind of gross male culture that we're in right now. So I don't know if that make, is making some sense to you. So uh, let me say a couple positive things about adolescence, and then I think I'll return to Rohr's five points and just maybe make a few comments about each one. So first of all, the gift of adolescence is eros. It's fire. I mean, that's actually in the vision quest. Go out and have a fiery experience and tell us about it. You know, I just thought of another cultural icon, Basquiat this 
uh, I think he's a French painter. This is in the Andy Warhol era, and he destroyed his life with heroin addiction. But he had this kind of wild fire. What a gift. Such unusual creations. So the gift is fire and eros and vitality. Not that you can't have eros and vitality as an adult too, but um, in no other time period in life is it quite like early adolescence. If you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about. It's a fiery storm all the time. And whether it's brooding or fighting back or, or sulking or, um, you know, strutting around like you own the world or sometimes like I could just weep at the kind of sincerity um, and belief that the world can be changed like these kids. God, these kids saying, not on my campus, do something about this. Um, and even walking outside, marching, you know, that's, that's Eros. I just knocked my coffee over. One second. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> had like a, a moment of Eros. I was like getting all excited here, sitting at my kitchen table. I knocked my own coffee over. Um, nearly destroyed my computer. That would have been awesome, like trying to <laughs> describe the fires of Eros and I burn out my own computer. Yeah, that's why you need a little Logos coming in. I was just thinking about these kids marching. Probably the best thing we could do as adults is go and join them. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Donald Trump has a real opportunity to lead like he has never led in his life, um, to burn his own book about the art of the deal and say, you know, teach me. And that doesn't mean you say to young people, whatever you want, whatever you think you know, it's you join, you learn, you listen, you bring in a little bit of wisdom, you bring in a little bit of, well, okay, a sense of time and a little more logos and um, how can we think about uh, making changes, whatever, I don't know, I'm just kind of riffing at this point. But my main point, the gift of adolescence is fire. And um, Bill Plotkin says one of the most important and creative and lovely and wonderful paradoxes in early adolescence is this dual desire for authenticity on the one hand you know who am i really who am i who am i what is mine to do what is my way of looking at life and 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 i understand that can grow and change because that's part of growing up but what is my authentic self look like and the other side of that coin is where do I fit in? And there's the tension, really, of early adolescence. If I'm too authentic, I might not fit in. If I'm too much of a conformist, and even a rebel is a kind of conformist, I won't know who I am. I won't taste that authenticity. And that's just, I think that's one of the paradoxes, and that's probably why... Um, or one reason why uh, being an adolescent is so fiery. And uh, one, one important archetype is, is the thespian, the actor. And you can see that with maybe your own teenagers, or if you can go back in time and remember what it was like to be in high school, where if suddenly the, the, the winds of culture shifted to some other style, way of walking, clothing, or music, if you were kind of insecure, you could, you could swap out your whole style in about a week and one trip to the mall or to Goodwill, you know. Um, and I'm saying that's a good thing. That's a wildly good thing. How else are you going to find out? Live with the tension of authenticity and social acceptance perfect. But to grow into an adult is to deepen, I think, the quest for authenticity. And probably this is where two roads diverge in a wood. That might not be what that poem is about, but let's just imagine two roads diverge in a wood. And um, one is toward uh, deeper authenticity, and the other is toward increasing conformity. Actually, the path of power, prestige, and possessions is about conformity. I'm going to go 
the way the world tells me success, um, what success looks like, power, prestige, and possessions. I'm going to take the path of conformity, and I'm going to, over time, lose this deeper sense of authenticity. That's what paves the way for a good, healthy midlife crisis. It doesn't have to be this way, um, or it doesn't always have to be this way, I, I, I might add. So um, now, back to Richard Rohr's awesome book here. These five patterns, promises, truths of an initiated male. When do you learn them? I think you begin to learn them in adolescence. And perhaps your initiation is when these have been integrated and embodied in some way. And you're beginning to move through life with these truths uh, and I don't mean you believe them intellectually, but rather they move to the level of embodiment. You live like this. So we'll go over them once again. Life is hard. Life is hard. Now, I guess I have to say, um, if you grew up with a certain amount of privilege, this is a really hard one to learn. Really, really hard one to learn. Rohr says, um, success has nothing to teach you after the age of 30. So um, a bunch of successes and entitlements and kind of an easy go of things. I don't know. It's, you know, you can have a lot of money and a lot of, um, and a boat and, you know, and life can be still really, really, really hard, especially with your parents and meaning. And so I'm not. But I'm saying a certain amount of privilege makes number one kind of hard to, to learn. Life is hard. If you are in, if you're a minority, if you grew up poor, you know, no one has to tell you life is hard. And I don't wish that on anyone, but from a mythic level, there's an advantage. You have an advantage. You know something that the elite, so to speak, or the privileged ones have a harder time learning you know life is hard. And that's not unrelated to the first tenet in Buddhism. Life is suffering. Yeah. And you have to turn toward that if you want to grow up. Life is hard. And I think religion can even get in the way of this. And if I can pick on Joel Olstein for a minute, who I'm sure is a very genuine and happy guy. Um, and I kind of like him. You know, I'd like to meet him. And he's, he's a, it strikes me, of all like the televangelists, he seems like a pretty genuine dude. Um, but sometimes what gets communicated is a kind of theology that life really isn't that hard if you plug in the right prayers and donations and get your, you know, spiritual ducks in a row. Um, life is great. Life is awesome. Life is not hard. Just have more faith. And I think that does does a great disservice to people. Um, it doesn't honor their pain, and it gives them a kind of false, um, a kind of uh, a false uh, promise. And um, yeah, so maybe that's not serving people all that well. So life is hard, and somewhere uh, in the fires of adolescence and early adulthood this lesson needs to come in and it might have to come in part just through life and maybe also through these older wiser um, bull elephants uh, charging <laughs> like wake up um, wake up number two you are not important this is a hard one to talk about because I think um, we, we live in a culture where self-esteem, low self-esteem is now an epidemic. It's an epidemic. You can see it in the president of the United States when he always has to, you know, everyone's got to praise me and, and think I'm awesome, you know. Um, you can't get any more power than you already have. And that's a giant mirror. That's a, that, that he is a giant mirror that mirrors back to us our own low self-esteem. 
and insecurities, deep, deep, deep insecurities. And so on the one hand, I want to say it's an epidemic of worthlessness right now. And through the religious sphere, if you grew up um, in maybe a fundamentalist, shame-based culture, you were told that you were worthless and that you're a sinner and, and God can't even look at you. And I wrote a bit about that in Bitten by a Camel in my book. Um, but, um, so I guess what I'm saying on the one hand, we definitely need, maybe this is maybe even more important before adolescence, we have to be, find ways to embody and communicate and tell young people that on the level of the soul, on the level of their essence, they are absolutely already totally worthy. Um, by virtue of just being alive, but you are not important. And I think this is the stinging arrow that's needed for healthy ego development. And what I mean by healthy ego development is I, it needs to be knocked down. Otherwise you're going to go straight up the ladder, power, prestige, and possessions. No, this arrow has to come flying in when you're least expecting it. The moment you think you're on top of the world and suddenly you're not important. That is a gift. But I think um, if it's really going to function as a gift rather than as an arrow of shame, it has to uh, be drawn in the bow of someone who's further down the road. Uh, An initiated adult, an initiated elder, an initiated parent, an initiated teacher that knows when to let that arrow fly. But it has to fly. Otherwise, we grow up in a very entitled, um, self-important kind of culture, which is what we're growing up in now. And number three, your life is not about you. And I can't think of personally anything right now that's more counter-cultural than your life is not about you. See, I see the, on a very subtle way, both the left and the right are really guilty a lot of the times of thinking that life is really about them. Nobody can tell me what to do. See, a good, you know, progressive and a good conservative can really say, you can't tell me what to do. Which, in a sense, is also saying, um, my life is about me. Don't tell me how to live. Don't put limits on me. Um, don't put limits on my rights. My rights are my rights, and you can't, um, you can't challenge them in any way. And the path that that leads to, in terms of um, cultural, uh, cultural forms of success, is that life is about what I accumulate, and whether I'm accumulating more and more prestige, whether I'm accumulating more and more power, or whether I'm accumulating more and more possessions. It doesn't matter. It's a life of accumulation. And um, <laughs> I don't know where I heard this once. I thought it was awesome when I was in high school, but it was like, he who dies with the most toys still dies. Um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. You're going to die. But the kind of what I loved about that when I was like 16 years old is I could see that in everybody else. I couldn't yet see that in me, but I could see it in everybody else. Like, what is going what What is all this accumulation, accumulation, accumulation? You're going to die, you know? Um, but when life is all about you, what else is there? And actually, narcissism and nihilism have this in common. Narcissist is obvious. Life is about me. The nihilist, in a way, has a very subtle version of that. Well, um, it's all meaningless. It's all pointless. The world's going to burn global warming, we've already passed the tipping point, Um, might as well, you know, have a few transitory pleasures in the sea of meaninglessness. That's really still, life is all about me. So the lesson that has to come in, and whether it's through life, through teachers, whatever, I don't know, your life is not about you. If that does not sink in, how are we going to have a culture that has some very old-fashioned things like self-sacrifice, like service? 
You can't even have a culture that can take seriously love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, where there's some acknowledgement of the other, that the other's right to live, work, breathe, clean air, have clean water, um, and even the rights of the land uh, itself, which often people don't talk about. What do you mean water has rights? What do you mean birds have rights? You're not going to get to that level of, of maturity, integration, and intimacy if life just remains all about you. And we really, really need adults who have a bigger vision, who, who are committing themselves to service. This is actually one of the things that I think religion does well or used to do well is pretty early on tell its young people that you are here to serve God. And now if God like freaks you out, I get it totally. Me too. Um, but that does something to the psyche, to the ego. Life is not about you. Wow. Um, so we, if, if religion is collapsing for you and your kids aren't growing up, um, with any, with any kind of God wants you to serve him, um, how, are we going to um, uh, creatively imagine cultural ways of communicating that? And um, that's, I guess I'm just saying that's maybe one of the pressing tasks at hand. And and if I can pick on Trump, you know, I, I know I, I pick on him all the time and, and it's largely because he's a mirror. And again, I don't know him per personally, so I just kind of take the caricature of him. But some of the more noble elements of um, the presidency, like um, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Um, Roosevelt, do what you can with what you have, where you are. And the office itself as really, if, I, if, I, if I'm honest, it's an archetypal office rooted in kingship. It is. I know it's a sort of a democracy. Um, but the archetype is rooted in kingship. And by the way, I had this like fantastic dream where Trump was sitting on a, on a throne and I, I, you know, upon thinking about this dream, I was really, of course, of course he is sitting on a throne. He, he's like a king. And I know this is something going on in my own psyche, but whatever, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything more about that right now. Um, but the kingship in its best in its absolute best is about self-sacrifice and service it's about washing other people's feet it's about collecting um grain and uh for periods of famine it's about protection from uh enemies and serving the needs of the vulnerable the vulnerable what what is amazing to me is that we live in supposedly a judeo-christian which i really don't like that phrase judeo-christian tradition america as if the jews and the christians got along um that so that's one thing that bothers me about it but um sometimes i want to say have you not read have you not read what the so supposedly judeo-christian tradition says about leadership have you not read the prophets the prophet's full-time job was to criticize a greedy um, leadership structure, whether it's the priesthood or the kings, because a good king, according to the prophets, according to the Bible, cared about the widow, the orphan, the, the widow, the orphan, the alien, the oppressed, the marginalized. That's what made a good king. So if you just take that archetype and say, what would make a good president? the one who was concerned about the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan, the uh, vulnerable, the marginalized. Now, you can debate what does that care look like. I realize that. But in terms of uh, the energy that they um, are called to embody, that's the Judeo-Christian tradition. So now I'm, I'm you know, sidetracked here. What's the main point? Your life is not about you. Then what is it about? Richard Rohr says, you're about life. Life is not about you. You are about life. You are about service to life, um, life enhancement, generativity, um, cooperation, participation, 
communion, old-fashioned, you know, right at the heart of Christianity, communing with the earth, with the other. Um, that's what you, you're, you're about, integration and intimacy with all of life. Life is not about you. Yeah, we need that arrow to fly. We need it to strike through the very hearts of our supposed adults, uh, much less our teenagers. Number four, you are not in control. Hmm, you are not in control. Again, I'm, I'm thinking about one of the gifts of my fundamentalist upbringing. And there are also a lot of a lot of things I'm, I've had to work through and I'm working through. But I'll tell you, like in a strange way, even hearing that God is in control diminished my own self-importance. It did. That's the psychological gift of it. Now, the theological dark side is that, you know, somehow God is like a puppeteer and he's controlling all these things. And, you know, if I get cancer, he's trying to get my attention, or my dad gets sick and gets ALS, you know, it's, it's like he's, he's got some master plan up there. That's a mechanistic sky god that I don't believe in. But from on the level of the, the developing psyche of a young person to say that God is in control also communicated, and you're not. And so what is that? If that doesn't come from the religion, but it comes from elders or leaders or, or, or a healthy culture, Communicating you are not in control is like a deflation. It's a diminishment. It's a humiliation. It's a humility. It's a, um, a stumbling stone. It's uh, falling down. It's tripping. It's, um, you know, St. Peter saying of Jesus, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right. And two minutes later, Jesus calls him Satan. You know, and says, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of human beings. You're not in control, Peter. That's a, lo a lovely, you know, deflating story. That's a bull elephant <laughs> charging in and knocking that down, knocking the egoic persona which likes to strut around and say, this is the way it's going to be, down. You are not in control. And um, I think one of the, the sad things about the American um, illusion, the American illusion that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can go from rags to riches, which happens to very few people, and if it does happen to them, there are en enormous and unexpected gifts that come in from the side that they never saw coming. That's always the truth, but it's an illusion communicates you're in control. Get up. Who cares if you were born in the poor zip code on in America? Move, you know, who cares if you can't afford a car, walk to work, save up your pennies. And there's always, um, I think there's always a little bit of truth in just about everything. Um, it's like, uh, you need, uh, wisdom maybe is, is the ability to, to have a sieve or, um, a filter of some sort where you're able to recognize and smell out and sniff out what, uh, the seed of truth, what's the seed of truth in, you can pull yourself up, yourself up by your bootstraps that, yeah, you have some will and life is hard. And sometimes you're going to have to do hard things, but what's not true is that you are ultimately in control. You can't even make your heart beat. You can't stop a storm. You can't, right now, we're having another, I think we had one in 2012, another massive flood, snowmelt, rain, and people's houses, once again, and businesses are being ruined. You can't stand at the edge of the river and say, I'm in control, you know. Mythically, it's laughing. Not that it's like, you know, has evil intentions or something, but no, life is a gift and it's a troubling gift. And sometimes things don't work out and sometimes things do work out and you have the capacity to change certain things in your life. And yet you also have limits. You have limits. The Greeks called the, the, the limits fate. 
Um, and they didn't mean it in such a fatalistic way. Um, yeah, you have limits. You're born into the culture you're born into, into the body that you're born into. Um, it's not true that I can be anything I want. I guarantee you, I cannot be an Olympic ice dancer. I just, I, I can't. There's just no way. It's, a, it's a, there's a limit. Um, I'm, I'm fated to have the body that I have or whatever. I don't know. Um, now, now I'm thinking about ice dancing. I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute. We're so like uh, indoctrinated to think we can be whatever we want to be. Um, that we're ultimately in control of our destiny and it's just a matter of choice and, you know, willpower and sticking it out and so forth. Um, but it turns out to really not be the case. But now all of a sudden I'm thinking like, wait a minute, maybe I could be a nice dancer, you know, um, or a curling champion. You know, if I just worked hard enough and got in my 10,000 hours, like Malcolm Gladwell says, then boom. Um, yeah, but so what, what am I describing? I'm describing limits. And that ultimately you are not in control. And sometimes I think life just has to do this to you, this one. Um, you marry the right person and they cheat on you. Oh, yeah, I guess I'm not in control. I can't even control my spouse or my kids. Parenting will do this one to you. Um, but it's an essential pattern or promise in the process of a maturing in this case, male, but probably anybody. Number five, the final one, you're going to die. Yeah, you're going to die. And um, I know we know this one. We know this like in a intellectual, like who would disagree? Um, except I remember at my dad's funeral, uh, I put this line in my book, but one of the people standing up there said, one thing we know is that death is not real. It's like, wow, you are delusional. Um, in fact, that's like, talk about refusing to grow up into an initiated adult, not looking at the reality of death and not necessarily saying you got to have the right beliefs about the afterlife. Who cares about that right now? Just you're going to die. Life is short. The clock is ticking. You're going to get old. I'm now 40. Where am I 41? I have no idea. I'm somewhere around there. And, um, you know, my genes, really, my DNA, I am kind of athletic. I played soccer in college. I put, um, I just did air quotation marks. I sat the bench for most of my college soccer career, but I was on the team. Um, and I'm not that bad at skiing and various other random sports and I do triathlons and I bike and, um, but all of a sudden I'm realizing, oh, my body doesn't work in the way that it used to work and it's not coming back. It's not coming back. Surgeries, cosmetics, I'm on my way to death. Now that is supposed to be a gift and a promise because the fragility of life, the limits that your own life um, sets upon you in, in a healthy culture is supposed to be a gift. And why is it a gift? Why is it a promise? Because you realize, all right, life is precious. My own life is precious. I'm going to die. Everyone I love and know and care about is going to die. So how am I going to turn my attention to the reality of this? And then all of a sudden, those, I think, deeper values um, that maybe rest in the seat of the human heart or the human soul. And maybe, they, maybe it's more like a question, like, what is the good life? And um, what would a, what, what's a healthy family look like? What's a healthy friendship look like? What's a healthy marriage look like? What's a healthy uh uh, parenting dynamic look like what's a healthy school system and and culture and society and politics and and I think the hunger begins to grow after facing mortality maybe this is one reason why in a judeo-christian culture that thinks that they're just going to live forever in heaven and be awesome and like take over the world and reign and and all this stuff why there's very little desire to turn our attention toward the sicknesses in our culture 
and to say, I'm going to do what I can with what I have, where I am, because I have limits and I'm going to die. And I have the responsibility to look out for the next generation and for the generation after that. But if that's not, you know, in your consciousness and you're just on a perpetual ladder and I'm power, prestige, prestige and possessions and there's just going to extend like a rocket ship into the afterlife and then I'm going to get a palace and I'm going to have a kick and pad and I'm going to be at MTV Cribs and there'd be ladies by the pool and Jesus will be chilling with me or whatever. I don't know if it's all upwards and outwards. Um, yeah, this is maybe a failure to turn toward the fact that you're going to die. <laughs> Richard Rohr in this book, uh, points out, I can't think of the author's name right now, and I, I don't really want to flip through the book, but um, the there's one, um, I, th I don't know if he's um, a psychologist, maybe a psychotherapist, psychologist, something like that, um, s says that all religion is rooted in the fear of death, in or maybe in the reality of our own mortality which maybe is a blessing and a curse um, because it can come up with fanciful ways of avoiding death. But I think an initiated adult is not trying to avoid death. And um, maybe that's uh, where this leads. So what do I say in, in summary here? I, well, I don't know. Um, all I'm trying to do is say, this stuff helped me. It's been helping me grow up. And I think when I... Um, feel my own narcissism and nihilism starting to surface uh, in the back of my throat, like a lump in my throat. Um, every once in a while, these five promises float by in my consciousness, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Life is hard, all right? This is the way it is. Um, every once in a while, when, when people aren't singing my praises, I think, all right, life is not important. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, life is important. You are not important. Kent Dobson is not important. All right, good. Uh, healthy humiliation is, is in order. When things don't go my way, all right, your life is not about you. And now when I look at my own kids, you know, I think, yeah, obviously my life is not about me. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're not in control. I mean, um, yeah, so many things right now feel out of control yeah that's part of uh being an adult yep yep and and after i'm gonna die <laughs> so um anyway i guess in conclusion i'll say very simply i hope this stuff helps